Welcome back. This week, I'm bringing you a amazing episode about two motions in the Jen Shaw wire fraud, money laundering, grand conspiracy of the world case. It's some interesting stuff, some really thorough lawyering, and literally hundreds of pages of information. Hundreds of pages of information. So I am going to simplify the best I can, pull out the details that we might not have talked about yet, some of the details of her arrest, some of the details of her interrogation, and some of the details of this fraud scheme that we haven't really gotten into yet that are really detailed in these two motions to talk about what Jen Shaw was up to selling these business opportunities. If you are on the YouTubes, you will get to see all the documents. If you're listening on the podcast only and want to see these documents, they're on the YouTubes. Since we have so much to talk about, uh, get a snack. (laughs) I'm just guessing right now this is going to be a long one and we're going to just get into it. But first, we're going to start with a quote. This comes to us from Jen Shaw's declaration as to why her dry contacts and her own curiosity made it difficult for her to uh, to not waive her Miranda rights, which she waived and then talked to the police for over 90 minutes. But this is what she said, quote, because I was not getting answers to my questions, I believed that the only way I was finally going to get an answer was to sign the paper and waive my rights. Did curiosity kill Jen Shaw? We're going to find out. Let's get into it. Hey there, welcome to The Emily Show. I'm your host, Emily D. Baker, badass lawyer and everyone's favorite legal commentator, breaking down the legal shit in the news and pop culture stories you want to talk about. I've been a licensed attorney for over 15 years, I'm a former prosecutor, and I'm a big fan of the cursey words. So let's break it down. Today we have two very extensive motions to break down. I think I've said that multiple times. Yes, it was a lot. It was a lot. But before we do that, I just want to remind you that the Law Nerd Shop is available for all of your Law Nerd needs. Shirts, we've got some new stuff coming in July, so be sure to keep an eye on social media for that. But shirts, hoodies, hats, all the good stuff, tons of mugs because you know how your girl feels about a mug. And if you have not checked out lawnerdshop.com yet, please go check out lawnerdshop.com. Let me know what your favorite is over on the social medias. I will also remind you that if you're in North America, and I know a lot of you are not seeing the podcast rankings from around the world. I know a lot of you are listening international. By the way, the Lawnerd Shop Uh, ships internationally and the shipping is not ridiculous. Those of you in Australia and the UK have reached out and said, thank you for shipping, not being ridiculous. Yay. But um, if you're in North America, the text crew is available at textemily.com. So you're always alerted when there are new episodes or when things are going down. And I have a new reel on Instagram breaking it down, or I've done a Twitter thread breaking down because the news has been moving really fast. The last few weeks, have been wild, keeping up with not only stuff moving quickly in the Girardi case, but stuff moving quickly in the Britney Spears conservatorship. There's new stuff in the Toddy Westbrook case, a new lawsuit filed there. And then, of course, all of these motions in the Jen Shaw case. So I have been literally up to my eyeballs in legal documents, it feels like, and super, super busy. So we're going to just get into the two different motions here, 
the defense motion to dismiss, and then the government's response. The court is going to read through all these motions and then decide what to do. I think that though the defense motion swings for the fences on this, I don't know if any of these will actually be granted, but we're going to break down what they said and the things that we learn because it is interesting. And at 206 pages, I can appreciate the amount of legal work that went into this. Some interesting details, and I'll highlight those as we go through, but the legal work on on both teams is really uh, appreciated and well done. This is a thorough and really clearly laid out, and while I think some of the defense points are novel and they definitely go for it, I don't know if the court will grant it, but again, the job of a defense attorney in a federal prosecution is to do everything that they can because the weight of the government evidence oftentimes is overwhelming in these cases. These are years-long investigation. And of course, as we know from earlier discussions and earlier documentation, Jen Shaw and her first assistant, Stuart Smith, are coming into this prosecution towards the end of this. What we learn in these motions is that this is the third set of cases with regard to this overall scheme. There have been two other cases that have gone to trial. There have been tens or 20 uh, plus defendants that have already pled or been convicted in these schemes. So Jen Shaw is coming right at the tail end as this is running up for trial in October, and her legal team has quite a mountain to climb with the evidence turned over by the government. The government is in a little bit of an easier position because they've been living with these cases for years now, even though they keep bringing in new information, new defendants. But the heart of the thing is the same. And in the government's motion, they actually say the heart of this is a fairly simple fraud case. I'm going to paraphrase for you. Emily words, not the government's words. Emily's words. Uh, This is a pretty simple fraud case. People lied about shit to get other people to turn over their money, knowing that when those people turned over their money for the shit that they lied about, they weren't getting the thing they thought that they were getting and they just didn't give a fuck. Oh, and then they ran it through offshore accounts. Basic, basic, basic fraud scheme. Let's pull in to the defense motion to dismiss. Now, as I have said, and I'm going to say more than once, this is 206 pages long. There is so much information. There are transcripts. There are affidavits. There have been FTC investigations. We're going to talk about all the opportunities that Jen Shaw had to know that this was going to go south before she chose to be on Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. Because there are some opportunities here. You know, maybe when she was deposed by the FTC a number of years ago where one would go, oh, um, Maybe there's stuff here that's problematic. And in the government's motion, there's some little nuggets that Jen shifted the way she was doing business after things were going badly to try to not make shit not illegal per se, but to conceal it better. My reading into what it says. So this motion from the defense asks for a number of things. First, they are asking to dismiss the superseding indictment for legal and factual insufficiency. Hey, your indictment sucks. The court should dismiss it. Throw it out, which means, you know, a new grand jury and a new indictment. Uh, Emily rating on that one, unlikely. They're asking for a bill of particulars. We will talk about what a bill of particulars is as we get into the arguments, but as I say, we're going to talk about it later and then go ahead to talk about it now. Yeah, me, totally me. (laughs) That's the way my brain works. 
it's basically saying that the government has to list out everything in a particular way. Like, what's all the shit? Tell us everything. I think that one is also fairly unlikely. C, they're asking to suppress evidence seized pursuant to two defective search warrants. We're not going to spend a ton of time on these arguments because in the government's motion, they say, hey, we didn't get anything off of the search warrant from the email address, and we're probably not going to use what we got from the search warrant from the cell phone. But we are going to talk about stuff in those search warrants because there was some interesting information disclosed in that. And if you ever want to know the amount of information law enforcement can get on you from your cell phone carrier, we'll talk a little bit about what the government asks for in those search warrants because it's quite a lot of information. And they ask if the evidence isn't suppressed, kind of the fopped, the fruit of the poisonous tree evidence isn't suppressed, then they want an evidentiary hearing under Franks v. Delaware. Again, I think this is all moot. They want the granting review of the grand jury minutes. I think that this is unlikely, but that argument is really predicated on, hey, if the search warrant is defective, because their argument is, and we'll get into it, but their argument is essentially the detective we think defense things, left out some key information and maybe misled. Maybe that was kind of a material misstatement of facts. So what might they have said at the grand jury? If we're saying this in search warrant affidavits, what might the grand jury be predicated on? So we need to review the minutes of the grand jury to make sure that the government didn't misrepresent things. E, compelling discovery of Brady and Giglio material. It's really hard for me to say Giglio. The letters get all mixed around. G-I-G-L-I-O, Giglio, not Gigolo, Emily. But it is hard because in my brain, the word flip-flops around. Also, those are obligations that the prosecution has to turn over information. The prosecution's like, uh, yeah, we've been turning it over. We've turned over that information. If more information comes up, we'll turn it over. Brady information is essentially impeachment information regarding to, um, not impeachment, exculpatory information with regard to the defense. So if there's evidence that shows that the defendant might not have done the thing, you have to turn it over. So any potentially exculpatory information. The Jiglio information is impeachment evidence of any witness. So evidence that could show um, that maybe the witness is not being truthful, has motivation to lie, or could be used to impeach that witness, really test their veracity at trial. Those are obligations the prosecution has to turn over. The defense would just like it now. I'd like it now, please. And the government's like, uh, yeah, we don't have to give that to you now. So no, <laughs> not going to happen. They also want under that the post-arrestment statements of co-defendant Stuart Smith. I bet they would love to know what Stuart had to say when he was arrested, wouldn't we all? The government outlines a few of the statements Stuart made after his arrest. We also have a transcript of Stuart getting interviewed. Well, mm interviewed, deposed by the FTC in connection with FTC lawsuits with regard to some of these companies. Oh, because yes, there have been FTC lawsuits with regards to some of these companies. And actually, they were shut the fuck down by the FTC, numerous companies. And guess what? New ones just sprang up like a fresh crop of herpes. <laughs> if you've been watching the live streams on YouTube, this has become a running theme by accident, kind of. Anyway, new businesses keep springing up like weeds, like mint, like mint in your garden. You, you plant mint in the ground and that shit's everywhere. These companies, <laughs> maybe that's a better analogy. So they want to know exactly what Stuart Smith had to say after he was arrested. 
They're also seeking to suppress Jen Shaw's post-arrest statements totally because her contacts were dry. And we'll get into the dry contact offense. This one's kind of new for me. Um, I've read through all these motions. Again, the likelihood of a federal judge saying, yes, Jen Shaw, your contacts were a bit blurry. Therefore, you couldn't hear the description of your rights. You you were unaware, even when you said that you willingly signed the form because you were curious. Sure, sure, your contacts made your Miranda waiver not voluntary. Okay. Yeah, no, that's not gonna that's not gonna happen. And then they asked for the ability to file additional supplemental motions and join co-defendants motions as appropriate. The reason they're asking for this is because the deadline has come up to file motions and they're saying, right, there's a lot of shit and we might need to file other motions. The government is saying, um, that's premature. We don't know yet. So why don't we just wait? They are requesting oral argument on this motion so that they can address any concerns the court might have. Why they request oral argument is instead of just having the court read the moving papers from the defense and then read the moving papers from the government and then issue a written ruling going, this is what I find and this is why. They want the opportunity to talk to the court about it. So what they say in their uh, quick factual background is that Shaw is charged in the superseding indictment returned March 25th, 2021, along with co-defendant Stuart Smith, with one count of conspiracy to commit wire fraud. Remember, it's not just committing wire fraud. It is the conspiracy to commit wire fraud, which is different because you're proving the agreement to do the thing. You're not proving the thing, and that's going to keep coming up. So remember, these are both conspiracy charges that Jen Shaw was part of the agreement to do all this shit, not necessarily that she was the one doing all of the shit. So that is the difference between charging somebody with wire fraud and charging someone with conspiracy to commit wire fraud. And then one count of conspiracy to commit money laundering. The fact that this particular docket was pending for 16 months and the broader set of apparent related cases has been before this court since 2017. See United States versus Ketabachi. There's another one that we learn about later. I'm, I'm, I'm spo- spoilers, Emily, spoilers in the government's motion that we'll discuss later. There's a third case. And I was floored. I was like, what the fuck? It's not just Ketabachi. There's another one too. So there's been two separate groups of indictments, two separate groups of defendants and trials. And please, before this group, in Cheadle, this group, or Cheaty, or whatever the dude's last name is, I look, it's the Shaw case for me, but that's not the main named defendant. So there are two that have already been resolved, and then this one that has now 11 defendants, some who have already pled. They say this has required Shaw's counsel to play catch-up as compared to others. Mom! Mom, it's not fair! They've had 16 months and we've got thrown in and they want us to go to trial in October. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of, it's a lot of work. I get it. Like I get, I get it. But also I don't know if it's going to be well taken because the court, I was on the call for the arraignment um, and was listening to the court and the court was very clear. Like what we're going to do is stay on track for trial because the other defendants have been in this thing for 16 months during a pandemic and we're going to keep, we're going to keep it moving. And um, I think Jen Shaw's attorneys are probably overwhelmed with the amount of discovery and that's not shade. Like, Oh, you just can't handle it. 
it's a fuck ton of information and we'll talk about exactly how much in this motion because it, it it's it's a it's a lot like it's a lot they're going to have to really strongly prioritize but they also have the benefit of two other trials reading trials transcripts though are just like oh but they have two other trials to go through all of the witness statements and all of those trial transcripts too because if those witnesses testify here they're going to need all of that to impeach those witnesses or compare statements there could also be depositions and other sworn statements like this is a this is a lot of work this is going to be a very expensive case to defend so they say that it has required counsel to play catch up but has provided us with perspective that has exposed multiple flaws in the theory of this case the investigation and the government's position with respect to certain disclosures to the defense as we note here and in our argument below concerning the motion to dismiss the indictment this appears to be the first time in the four-year history of these related cases that a defendant has challenged the government's theory of criminal fraud, which is a very interesting thing. They're saying that none of the other defendants, and now we're talking multiple prosecutions and at least 11 defendants in this case and multiple defendants in the other two cases, no one has ever said, but is it really fraud? Hmm? Hmm? Is it actually just business? And that's what they get into arguing here, that this is not fraud. It's business, business, business. See, it's just a business, and no one understands the business, which if you watched Real Housewives of Salt Lake City, Jen's description of her business actually comes up in some of the government motions and um, and one of the search warrants, which is interesting. But this is like business, business, business. It's just business. And if these are deceptive business practices, fine. But what it's not is a conspiracy to commit wire fraud. They go on to say that the superseding indictment presents a bare bones wire fraud and conspiracy theory. No, it presents, if they're saying bare bones, fine, a conspiracy to commit wire fraud and a conspiracy to money launder theory. And they say that that does not adequately allege either the required elements of the intent to defraud or materiality and appears to rely on false promise theory involving specific returns on purchasers' investments, which would be mere breaches of contract or, in theory, deceptive sales practices. Okay, not in theory. The FTC has shut down multiple of these businesses, as we learn later. Deceptive sales practice violations that fall under the jurisdiction of the FTC. Yeah, the FTC went around and shut that all down, and guess what? It kept going. They say the superseding indictment is not at all clear as to its precise theory, nor which co-conspirators, companies, sales floors, victims, or timeframes constitute the allegations against Ms. Shaw. The government's response to that is the time frame is from 2012 to 2020. <laughs> What's unclear about that? They say the government has thus far, with limited exceptions detailed below, declined to provide additional particulars. That position is particularly confounding in light of the truly massive number of documents and other items that have been produced in discovery, numbering well into the excess of 1.3 million documents and the additional contents of hundreds of electronic devices. This information cannot be adequately reviewed in a lifetime and requires, as we argue below, the government particularize the charges in a way that this relatively bare-bones superseding indictment does not. 1.3 million documents. And as they detail later, the 1.3 million documents are independent documents, but some of those documents have thousands and one of them hundreds of thousands of pages. So 
1.3 million independent documents, but those documents have more than one page each. That's not pages. One of those documents has over 100,000 pages. So that's like printout. A document would be an entire printout of, of a bank account, right? Which could be thousands and tens of thousands of pages, but that would count as one document. Right. They go on to say, because of the massive volume of documents, there simply has not been enough time to review, nor has Ms. Shaw's team yet received any of the electronic devices seized throughout the course of this long investigation. Right. They're going to give you the readouts from the doc. The uh, from the devices, not the actual devices, but cool, cool. They go on to get into their arguments that the court should dismiss the indictment because this indictment is really proper for like an FTC complaint. We'll see that there were FTC actions. They say that the government's language defining the fraud isn't enough. They say that you know, Shaw and Smith purportedly joined this alleged conspiracy, and the indictment says that they, quote, trafficked in lists of potential victims or leads, purportedly, quote, with the knowledge that the individual they had identified as leads would be defrauded by other participants. We'll get into the fraud scheme as it's defined down the down the line, but they say that that's not enough, but the government is saying, no, you know what you did, and this clearly states it, and other documents we've turned over define this scheme very clearly. The government also says, which is a point well taken by me, um, there's these two other trials for the exact same shit, so if you just look at those, you'll know exactly what we're pleading, but the pleading is sufficient, and pleadings are really not the way civil um civil complaints are. Civil complaints weave this whole story, well, good ones, weave this whole story of what's going on and on what dates and who said what and who did what and why are we suing you. Criminal complaints are literally like, this crime happened on this day and time with regard to this person. But because this is a conspiracy, they're not even going to be naming victims because it's the conspiracy to commit wire fraud on victims, not that a particular victim was defrauded by the wire fraud. Those victims will be shown by way of example to show that there was wire fraud, but that's not the proof of the conspiracy. The conspiracy is the agreement to do the thing, not the actual thing. The thing will be proven to say, look, but there was a thing. It feels like semantics, but it's actually kind of important. I love, have I talked about how much I love white collar crime? I love white collar crime. It is really fascinating stuff. And some of these charges do give the government quite a lot of latitude to come after you. Wire fraud being one of those charges, conspiracy being another one. So now we've kind of bundled them together to be like, look, this is criminal and it's not going to go well. And that's really the government's theory here. They go on to argue that the indictment should be dismissed because of its vagueness. They talk about the fact that the statement of essential facts and citation of the statute is necessary, but that more is required to protect a defendant from being subsequently prosecuted down the road. So if you don't know exactly what you're being charged with, double jeopardy could attach or not attach, and you could be charged later with something else. And really kind of making that argument that this indictment is not particular enough to protect Jen Shaw down the road and really protect her rights down the road. So it's not specific enough. The facts aren't enough. The next argument that the defense makes is that they want the government to produce a bill of particulars. The bill of particulars really is a listing out of 
all of the things. So we're going to talk about this. So under Federal Rule of Criminal Procedure 7F, they're asking for a bill of particulars saying that the indictment is so vague and is exceedingly difficult to understand the contours and charges against the defendant. They're saying it's within the government's power to allege that hundreds or thousands of people were defrauded in separate indictments over nine years through multiple companies in just one count. Their choice in pleading the case this way cries out for particulars. They go on to say that Shaw is charged with participating in two long conspiracies with unspecified co-conspirators in unspecified places, selling unspecified products and services to unspecified victims while laundering money through unspecified accounts with unspecified financial institutions at unspecified times over an eight or nine year period. And that she simply, Shaw, does not have enough specificity to prevent surprise at trial, protect against double jeopardy, or prepare a defense. Here's the thing, though, when you're the defendant. Um, you, you know what bank accounts you had access to. You know the people that you talked to. You know the financial institutions you used. You know the business that you did. So part of, part of this will be the court saying, right, but you're the defendant and you're in the best position to know a lot of these things better than the government because, you know, you're alleged to be involved. So you are in a really good position to know what bank accounts you had. The thing is, with the length of time, I can understand why the defense is like, I mean, who remembers what bank account they used eight years ago if there are so many bank accounts? I mean, you know, most of us, I think, are like, no, I don't change those very often. They then get back into the discovery and we get a lot more information about how much this really is. They say they appreciate that the government has provided discovery, but it is vast. At last count, roughly 227 gigabytes of material, nearly a million documents, and more than 36 hours of audio and video recording from more than 500 different sources, including hundreds of thousands of pages of financial records. Those are so much fun to go through. I enjoyed going through financial records as a prosecutor. They go on to say Google Drive's associated with hundreds of accounts and more than 400 electronic devices. <laughs> Moreover, some of the individual documents produced by the government include tens of thousands of pages within one document with at least one at more than 100,000 pages in the one document. This production came with 22 cover letters covering separate entity uh covering separate entries, the vast majority of which were sent to other defendants long before Shaw was indicted. The cover letters are the government saying, hey, in this group of shit, it's this. And in this other group of stuff, it's this, which is not just a full discovery dump that you see in like civil cases where you see people burying one document, millions of other documents. It's actually broken down. The government as a, a prosecution can't just dump all this stuff in no organized fashion. So these things would be organized. It's a lot of information, but it would be organized in a way that they can at least make heads or tails out of it. They know that there are Google drives. I mean, they know that there are documents. They know that it's 36 hours of audio and video recording, which actually in a case like this, isn't that much um, audio and video. And there are those 22 cover letters saying, hey, it's all of this. But the defense is arguing this is a discovery dump and how could we possibly know what's important? <laughs> the government's gonna say, Haha, <laughs> that's for you to discover what's important because we are still building our case and you never know what might happen at trial. You need to know all of it because if something happens at trial, you might need to pull out other information and be like, this negates that other aspect or this counteracts that other testimony. So you can't just say, well, it is 
The defense goes on to say, as we explained below, this daunting trove of documents is far from adequate to allow the defense to discern the particulars required by law. The government argues, negative, ghostwriter. The pattern is full, literally. The defense tells us that they asked the government for more information about the discovery and that the government persisted in its denial of the request with two exceptions and provided them only as a courtesy. The government provided a list of 49 individuals and companies that they said are included in the scheme charged in the indictment as related to the defendant and a purported time frame for the key events charge. They go on to describe the purported time frame saying, with respect to the request for dates of key events, the government provided ICE in winter. Quote, the key events of the scheme charged in the superseding indictment occurred between in or about 2012 and in or about March 2021. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that 2012 and March 2021. Between those two time periods, the defense goes on to say, which is a precise nine-year range already alleged in the superseding indictment. Yeah, and they're not going to get more particular on that. They get into the legal standard for the Bill of Particulars, but we will get into that as the government responds. Part of the issue that the government's going to have with the Bill of Particulars is it limits them, and the government does not want to be limited in what they're allowed to argue at trial because, again, stuff shifts and morphs and comes up as a trial progresses. Even though they've already charged other defendants in this scheme, it's not unlikely to think that this can continue to move as they get towards prosecution as more information might become available to these two newer defendants to this whole scheme. The defense then goes on to talk about some Second Circuit cases with regards to RICO conspiracy, which is different um, than just conspiracy. But it's interesting. They start quoting cases that talk about wide latitude for the prosecution to frame the charge. And then they say, but with that latitude comes an obligation to particularize the nature of the charge to a degree that might not be necessary in a prosecution of crimes more limited scope. So my note on this was, with great latitude comes great responsibility. Well, they say it later. <laughs> they say this court is well familiar with the legendary breadth of mail and wire fraud, including Judge Rakoff's famous quip that mail fraud is the federal prosecutor's true love. Then they go on to quote the judge saying that the versatility of mail and wire fraud statutes give rise to the observation that, quote, to the federal prosecutors of white collar crime, the mail fraud statute is our true love. We may flirt with Rico, show off with 10B5, and call conspiracy law darling, but we will always come home to the virtues of 18 U.S.C. 1341, quoting Judge Rakoff in the federal mail fraud statute. They go on to say literally the next line, but with great versatility, we submit comes great responsibility, to which I say, touche, well played. I enjoyed this little vignette of this motion. I thought it was, it, it doesn't move their motion forward, but it entertains the hell out of me. So I am very appreciative. They say, when the darling of prosecutors, conspiracy, and I mean, conspiracy is pretty versatile. It, it does really give some wide latitude. If you enter into agreements to do sketchy shit that's illegal, it's, uh, it's going to come back. So they go on to say, well, the darling of prosecutors' conspiracy is joined with the 
true love wire fraud in a charge that spans nine years. The least prosecutors can do is ensure that the defendant be specifically informed before trial of the particulars of what she is alleged to have done. That. That is what they say. Uh, the defense, it, I mean, their point's well taken, but also the prosecutor's like, yeah, that's your job. <laughs> We don't have to tell you what we're doing. We don't have to tell you everything. We don't have to give you a map. Um, you know, you can go look at the other trials that we've done and figure out what this scheme is. Also, you know, talk to your client. Ask your client for all of the details. Your client is your best roadmap. They ask for the disclosure of the particulars in that they want disclosure of what victims they're talking about, what sales floors they're talking about, what fulfillment companies they're talking about, what business services and coaching they're talking about, what co-conspirators they're talking about, a particularized timeline. And you know, what, what's all this with the money laundering? It's interesting because the scheme is generally outlined in search warrants that will come up later that we're going to talk about. The government says in their motion that the search warrants are kind of a moot point. So we're not going to get into the law regarding these search warrants and whether there were material misstatements or not material misstatements, because at the end of the day, from what the government responded, it's probably not super relevant here. But it does give us a good outline of the fraud in that search warrant affidavit listing out what was done. And that I found very interesting. The next argument they make is that the court should disclose the grand jury minutes or review them in camera. This really tags on to the thought or the defense argument that they believe there are some material misstatements in the search warrant affidavits. And if there's material misstatements in the search warrant affidavits, who knows what they said to the grand jury? There are legal standards for this. The prosecution or the government goes on to say, look, the misstatements aren't misstatements. You just disagree with the conclusions we made from the evidence we have. You're allowed to disagree. That's literally what the fuck a trial is for. It's for us to present our side and you go, no, no, that's not how these facts play out or that's not what these facts are. It's not that, it's this. And it's a point well taken for me that a disagreement of fact is not a material misstatement in a search warrant affidavit. And most of what they were um, arguing over was exactly how involved Shaw was in some of these companies to get these affidavits. But because the other point is moot, this point will probably be moot. And courts are very hesitant to unseal grand juries and turn those over. The next argument they make is that the court needs to compel production of Brady and Giglio material. The thing is, Brady material is obligated. Giglio material is obligated. The prosecution says, how can you know we haven't turned everything over when you said you haven't reviewed all the discovery yet? The information is there. You know, we don't have to put red arrows on all of it. We have illustrated a lot of it, but all the information that we have, we've given you. And if we haven't given you anything yet, it's because we're not obligated to do so yet because there are timings for these things. And the government does follow a timeline in their discovery disclosure. There's like a coordinating discovery attorney that will be involved in that. So the government's like, we're aware of our obligation. We're going to meet our obligation that this argument's dumb is essentially what they're saying. There's no way the court's going to obligate us to do this early. There's a procedure for these things. Stop arguing about it. That's really what the government's response to that is. We then get into the, I couldn't hear you because my contacts are dry argument, 
which is me poking fun at Jen Shaw's My Contacts Are Dry, so I didn't know. I did cover some of this. Well, no, that's not true. I covered all of this in a video on YouTube that will be linked in this playlist where I really get into Jen Shaw's entire circumstance of arrest and everything that she says in her affidavit. For our purposes today, we're going to kind of hit the highlight. Shaw argues that because she had a prior um, incident with an individual they call Individual One. Individual One alleged, not allegedly, well, allegedly. They say in this, uh, Individual One is a convicted felon who victimized her in New York. It sounds like she actually got jumped and then got a restraining order. Later, it's also alleged that the sales floor she was using was out of New York, and it seems that Individual One is also involved in this whole scheme. It feels like some godfathery type shit going on um, that we don't really know because we don't know the name, but that's, it seems like something was going awry within this scheme. And that's why this interaction and assault happened with Jen Shaw and individual number one. She had a restraining order against individual number one. And she said when she saw the New York number from the detective calling her to tell her to pull over, you know, as she was on her way to filming Real Housewives of Salt Lake City. I'm dying for this footage. I am going to be so wrapped at attention to watch Salt Lake City when it happens because I want to see the van with all the other women get pulled over by Homeland Security. Like, we're looking for Jen Shaw. Can you imagine what these bitches are going to do? I mean, women, what these women are going to do. I I I don't I don't mean bitches in a derogatory way. I'm like, but girl, can you imagine when the Homeland Security pulls over this van full of housewives, what their response is going to be? And it's that, oh, we're looking for Jen Shaw, the gagging that's going to happen. And what is the conversation going to be on the girls' trip? Like, are they all gonna be in their um in their confessionals going? Well, what could it be? What could it? I mean, I don't understand what she did in business. Was she arrested? And then, like, watching the news happening, I can't wait for all of this to unfold on TV. I think it brings a lot of interest to this case because we also know that the arrest and what's gone on till now is playing out in real time as Bravo cameras are rolling. I'm fascinated by all of it. Call me basic. I, I'll take it. I'll take all of it. I can't wait to see this happen. So, Jen Shaw is arguing that because she had this interaction with this person in New York and because she has a um, restraining order against this person, she was very confused when she got called by a detective in New York while she was driving in Utah. She was very confused that when they showed up, they took her out of her car, took her to the back of her car, you know, at the trunk, put her in handcuffs, said you're under, we have a warrant for your arrest, and then put her in the car saying, oh, well, we're trying to keep you safe. I think that. Most officers, when they handcuff you and put you in a car, um, will say at some point, like, we need you to cooperate. We're trying to keep you safe so people don't hurt themselves while they're in. I imagine Jen Shaw was in very high heels <laughs> and cuffs. So she was she was so confused because of this prior New York incident. And that comes up in the uh, government's motion where they kind of throw a little bit of shade towards this. So the the heart of all of this is that Jen Shaw is consumed with curiosity. The defense says, quote, Miss Shaw was consumed with a desire to know why she was placed in handcuffs and apparently arrested. She could not handle the officers not answering her questions. Can you picture this playing out? If you've watched Housewives of Salt Lake City and you've watched Jen Shaw on TV, 
You have a vivid image in your mind right now of Jen Shaw wanting answers from these police officers that aren't giving them to her. And she said that consumption with desire to know that curiosity is why she waved her Miranda rights. So maybe then they'd give her some fucking answers. They gave her answers. You're being placed in handcuffs and we have a warrant for your arrest. I don't know what, what else you need to know because that shit's pretty clear. You're under arrest. They then took her to the ICE headquarters, took her to a break room, and handcuffed her to a chair. They read her her Miranda warnings. They also then had her sign and read along. She said, quote, this is the defense motion, because in Jen Shaw's declaration, she says, yeah, I heard them, but I was but I was consumed with desire to know. I was so curious. I, I had to wave my Miranda rights. Curiosity made me wave my Miranda rights. Guess what? Um, that's not a legal grounds for an involuntary waiver. Your own damn curiosity is not enough for a judge to say, oh, yes, you were clearly coerced by the government to waive your Miranda rights. No, that's not coercion. That's just you being curious. Curiosity and coercion, they both start with a C. They're different. So this is what the defense motion says. Although she heard the words Detective Bastos read, Ms. Shaw's contact lenses, which were in her eyes, thank you for the clarification, <laughs> that we're not talking about contact lenses laying on a table. Ms. Shaw's contact lenses, which were in her eyes, were dry, and she did not have her reading glasses, so her vision was blurry, and she was unable to read the paper in front of her. Even while being read her rights, Ms. Shaw did not know what was going on. You've been told that there's a warrant for your arrest, that you're under arrest. You got handcuffed at the back of your car, placed into a police vehicle, taken to ICE headquarters, placed in a room with two officers, and handcuffed to a chair wherein they're reading you your Miranda rights. What confusion. I'm confused that you're confused. But she did not know what was going on, and she still thought this might be a misidentification. The government actually has a very interesting response to this. She was eager to find out what was going on, and the detective said he just wanted to talk to her and make sure that she was okay. The defense goes on to say that Jen believed the only way she was finally going to get an answer was to sign the paper and waive her rights. Here's just a, here's just a tip. Just a tip. You're not going to get answers from the police that are interrogating you. That's literally not what they're there to do. They're there to get answers from you, not the other way around. And even if they give you answers, they don't have to give you true answers. They're not obligated to tell you the truth about anything. They're not obligated at that point to tell you what you're charged with. They're obligated to tell you that you have a right to an attorney and you have the right to shut the fuck up. And if you choose not to shut the fuck up, well, then it's kind of game on. But what they're not going to do is answer your questions just because you're curious. It's not what they do. So, you know, most of the time, if you're really worried about it, just shut the fuck up. That's it. Just, just let your attorney clear up the, 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 the confusion for you. This is not going, this is not going to, the judge is going to be like, no, no, no. This isn't even, this isn't even close to the case law on government coercion in a Miranda waiver. This isn't, this isn't even in the same realm. And in those cases, they're talking about, and the government points out a few of them, people who are getting ready, like literally on the gurney, being prepped for life-saving surgery as they're like bleeding out from gunshot wounds. And even then, they were like, no, it's a voluntary waiver. The, your dry contacts don't compare 
to the kind of dire circumstances in some of the case law. Um, so this is just not going to, this is just not going to be uh, well taken. And guess what? After she waved her rights and started talking, they were like, oh, are you uncomfortable? And Jen Chow was like, yes, I am. And they're like, oh, okay. Um, let us uncuff you so you can get the contact solution in your bag and fix your contacts. And then she continued to talk to them for like 90 minutes. Yeah. Nope. Notably, the defense says, the interrogation itself corroborates that the agents had no intention of telling Ms. Shaw the true purpose of the interrogation. Look, as we get into the fact that most of these, a lot of these companies, I can't say most because I don't know because there are so many of them. A number of these companies have already been shut down by the FTC. She's been deposed by the FTC. These companies have been sued by the FTC. Others involved with the scheme have been arrested. Two other cases have indicated that people have been arrested, prosecuted, pled guilty, gone to prison. Uh, you're going to tell me you don't know? Your confusion? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm not buying it for a fucking second. Not a second. They said that the police misrepresentation led to a coerced waiver. No, that's just not what happened here. It just, this argument is, this is, this is going nowhere. Jen Shaw's post-arrest statement is going nowhere. And even if it does, this comes up in 403 motions. Like this comes up later when it's like, oh, we should suppress the statement because, you know, there wasn't a valid Miranda waiver. This comes up later on. It doesn't come up yet. This generally comes up in 403 motions, but you know, or 402 motions. It's been a while for me. I'm like, 402, 403, 402, 403. One of the two. Look, it's one of the two. It's been a while since I've done a trial. Uh, So sometimes in my brain, I'm like, no, I know it's one of these two. The final point that the defense makes is that the defendant should be permitted to file additional motions. This is probably not ripe yet because they don't know if they need to file additional motions. Then they would ask the court for leave to file additional motions. So we're not going to really tack on to that too much because there's just a little, there's more, there's more to go before that is even really relevant to the court. Part of what's interesting to me is they included their correspondence with the government and the government really responded pretty particularly to these defense requests before this motion was brought. And I thought some of the responses were like, well, yeah, (laughs) well, yeah. So the government says with response to defense request for um, a bill of particulars, quote, this is from the government's email response to the defense attorney asking for the bill of particulars. You request the government provide a bill of particulars. As set forth herein, the government does not intend to provide further particulars because under the well-established law of this circuit, it has no obligation to do so. To the contrary, as you are well aware, the government outlined its charges against your client in a detailed speaking indictment and has since provided considerable additional information through the production of voluminous discovery voluminous being an understatement. The government also lays out um, later on some of the communications from Stuart Smith that could potentially be exculpatory for Jen Shaw. And we will get into those right now. In another email response to defense counsel, the government's response is, quote, you request the government 
immediately produced Stuart Smith's post-arrest statement, citing the potential that the statement contains material favorable to the defendant. That would be the uh, potential Brady information. After considering your request, we can confirm that Stuart Smith did give a recorded post-arrest interview on April 30th, 2021. During that interview, he told law enforcement in substance and in part the following information. And this is the information the government believes could potentially be helpful to Jen Shaw's defense. They're not obligated to turn over anything else. So this is Stuart Smith saying he was the sole owner of Mastery Pro Group, among other entities, and that the defendant provided consulting services to Smith's companies and assisted with, quote, getting it going and helping him, that the defendant, quote, hasn't done anything with this for a long time. Smith later clarified that, quote, long time, referred to the prior year or two, but that Smith continued to pay the defendant $2,500 per week of consulting fees. So Jen Shaw is not doing anything. Stuart Smith is her first assistant, and he's paying her $2,500 a week in a consulting fee with regard to this company. Make it make sense. Make that make sense. Smith said that his companies never received letters or complaints from the attorney general's office, that his companies did not send money to Kosovo, that'll come up later, and did not recall, quote, doing anything with anyone in Kosovo. Smith incorporated Mastery Pro with his other business entities in Wyoming for privacy protection. That is, they say, to prevent people with whom Smith was doing business from knowing that Smith owned the company. Interesting. Smith believed that the coaching services provided had, quote, value, though Smith acknowledged that the majority of his customers did not make money on their online businesses. Smith stated that, quote, some customers did earn money and that he believed people could, quote, have success in the online business and that he was willing to provide the government with testimonials and contact information for customers who did, in fact, earn money through their investment. Note. To date, Smith has not provided the government with any such information. Attached after that are two extensive search warrant affidavits looking for information with regards to different cell phone numbers for Jen Shaw, an 801 number and a 385 number, looking just for location information and historic location information. So triangulating where Jen Shaw was or might have been on particular dates. The government has said they might not be using the precise location information or cell site data information in their case in chief. But the probable cause declaration, you know, the reason they're allowed to get this search warrant, the reason they think that she's involved in some shit, lays out this scheme very concisely. And I think that that is helpful because it's more information that we've than we've really seen in any of these. So the search warrant affidavit says that the purported online business, ostensibly but not actually, established by the perpetrators of the business opportunity scheme, BizOp scheme, and used to induce payment by the victims included businesses said to be online marketplaces and online merchant processing businesses. In connection with the sale of these purported businesses, participants in the business opportunity scheme, defendants and co-conspirators, would sell services purporting to make the management of these businesses more efficient or profitable. Business, 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 business including, quote, coaching services, tax preparation, website design services. 
At the outset of the business opportunity scheme, a victim would receive electronic or paper pamphlets and or so-called coaching sessions regarding these purported online businesses. But at no point did the victims actually earn any of the promised return on their investment. So it really is this ongoing like, hey, we've got this great business opportunity for you. And then, hey, we're going to help that business be even more profitable by giving you coaching and tax prep and a website. And then down the road, not in the scheme Jen Shaw's charged in, but in the scheme other co-conspirators were charged in, hey, we'll give you debt relief uh, services because now you're in so much credit card debt because you bought into all the coaching and all the rest of the scheme that then you need debt relief services. So they just kept milking people. And they identified those people because they made small online purchases. And the information that they collected from the sale of those small purchases, like, hey, earn money working from home or whatever it was, these little microtransactions collected enough data that then the people would be cold called to see if they might be a right fit and or susceptible to this scheme. And then those leads were collected by Genshaw and sold. So that's really how it started. They collected the data online through small purchases and then sold them through this chain that the government is alleging is fraudulent. The investigator says that with interviews of more than 100 victims and the investigation, each victim was contacted by phone by a representative of one of the telemarketing companies who offered them the opportunity to earn money by making a cash investment. The victims were promised the opportunity to earn money through purported marketing websites or online business that would be created for the victim. Each victim was told only uh, that the only step necessary for participating was an initial cash investment. So like business in a box kind of shit, like you pay us and we're just going to give you a business. that's just going to start making money online. It's going to rank really high on Google and it's just money's going to just happen. Like it's the internet. People will find the website and they'll buy things and money will happen because internet is how this all felt. Many victims invested thousands of dollars with the telemarketing companies. And then we learn that a lot of this information is coming from individuals who have pled guilty and are cooperating with the government. There are four different cooperating witnesses that are outlined in this. So yes, there are individuals who were charged in this scheme that have laid out the rest of this scheme for the government. Cooperating witness one, cooperating witness two, and two others that talk about the Olive Branch Marketing Company in Jersey and how they were buying leads from Jen Shaw, how they were getting around chargebacks, how they and why they were opening new companies when one company got too many chargebacks, which can shut down your merchant processing. Because if you have too many chargebacks, the credit card processing companies are like, oh, you're high risk. We're not going to allow you to process people's credit cards anymore. Very, very interesting stuff. We also learn that there is a uh, CS1, so not a cooperating witness one, but a different individual who pled, who outlines that they were purchasing leads. Them in their business were purchasing leads directly from Jen Shaw, and that they understood that Shaw also provided leads to other telemarketing companies, that Shaw operated the company that provided fulfillment services, that Shaw was based in Utah, but operated a telemarketing company based in Manhattan um, that sold the business services, that the company leads from Shaw were sold, then became victims of this scheme and were sold products of the telemarketing company. They broke down the involvement of others who were buying things from Jen Shaw and how these, these individuals that were targeted, the victims or the leads, were being pushed through this kind of 
fraud pipeline to have, I mean, really just be built of their money in this like, hey, you're going to get this great opportunity and all these things are going to happen. And then those things were never delivered upon. We learn in some of the sales materials that are attached in this that the sales materials specifically say, hey, don't make claims with regards to particular earnings. But we also learn that some of these enrollment packages were $8,000 packages that included one-on-one mentoring sessions for five weeks, quote, my supplier find, um, which seems like a uh, access to like a another type of website where you had more information, so finding suppliers, a gold website construction package, a website promotion package, and social media creation. They're charging you $8,000 to talk to somebody five times to get a website that most, it seems, didn't get delivered on, and to open social media accounts and to website promote. I wonder if the website promotions were happening on the My Supplier Find, and so the websites were being promoted just within the thing that they say where they were giving access to. I'm curious. But $8,000 is where this started. And then it was like the upsell and upsell and upsell of, oh, we can have tax services, and oh, you can have this, and oh, you can have that. Upsell, upsell, upsell. Oh, if you want to be more successful, you just need more coaching. Sell up, sell up, sell. Oh, it's not working yet. Don't lose faith. We've got another package for you that's absolutely going to work and it's going to be your, you know, whatever, whatever it is. We learn quite a lot from Jen Shaw's deposition in connection with a FTC case um, about her work history. So they talk about her current title at something called Guidance. And this is a deposition that was taken in 2015. So look, she's deposed in 2015 about these businesses. Don't tell me you don't kind of know stuff's going on because more shit went down after that. But she worked at Guidance and she said that she was in business development regarding finding additional opportunities and new opportunities to provide coaching, education services, and fulfillment services to businesses so that it could vary from different companies um, that would have a need for education fulfillment. So this fulfillment that she was working in, they said, okay, so you said you worked at Guidance. Did you work at Thrive? before. Yes, Thrive Learning. Um, She started there in August 2011. Her role with Thrive was as a contractor um, and that she had some responsibilities with them. And then before Thrive Learning, she worked somewhere called Prosper. Before Prosper, she actually worked with Franklin Covey uh, or Franklin Covey and that she was in marketing and brand management there and was doing their curriculum there. So went from working with Franklin Covey into all these other businesses, all of the names which kind of go along with this scheme, Prosper, Thrive, Guidance, they all had these kind of big dream type names, which is really interesting. So that was kind of the little nugget from what the defense attached there. The defense also attached the Um, affidavit in support of the warrant for search and seizure from um, a Palomo Trail location in Park City, Utah, which I believe to be Jen Shaw's location, and then another location in Lehigh, Utah, which I believe to be Stuart Smith's location, and that provides some additional information as well. What I particularly love about this Uh, search warrant is that it gets into what was said on Real Housewives. So what was literally said on television becomes a part of this search warrant. They say that Shaw and Smith are featured on a reality television show. 
quote the TV show that aired from in or about November 2020 through in or about February 2021. On the TV show and on websites affiliated with the TV show, Shaw is described as the CEO of three marketing companies. Now remember, the defense is arguing in parts of this that the misrepresentation and I say remember, but I might not have actually stated it, that one of the misrepresentations is that Jen wasn't in charge of these companies. Jen just worked at these companies. Other people were in charge of these companies, not Jen Shaw. So they're laying out that Jen Shaw is described as the CEO of three marketing companies, and Smith is described as her first assistant. In one episode, Shaw stated, if you don't think that the government is looking at these episodes for Erica Girardi, if you don't think the government was transcribing housewives with regard to, you know, Teresa Judice, let this be instructive. In one episode, Shaw stated, quote, I run a lot of different companies and businesses. My background is in direct response marketing for about 20 years. So our company does, you know, advertising. This again feels like Unikitty going business, 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 business. It goes on to quote her saying, we have a platform that helps people acquire customers. So when you're online shopping or on the interview and something pops, we have the algorithm behind why you're getting served that ad. What they do is take these microtransaction purchases information and use it to target leads, vet the leads to make sure they have money and then sell those leads to the sales floors that then scam them right? And then they get a cut of all of it. Um, but how is that not Jen saying, we have a platform that helps people acquire customers. We sell leads. Like that's literally what that says. <laughs> so they've now quoted the Real Housewives, her own statement on TV against her in a, you know, search warrant affidavit. They then talk about the conversations with cooperating witness one, two, eight, and nine. A lot of cooperating witnesses. A lot of people want lenient sentences. Um, and a review of materials from the FTC showing that Shaw and Smith have been affiliated with several telemarketing companies that participate in this business opportunity scheme, including Thrive Learning, Guidance Mastery Pro Group, and Red Steel. Red Steel to me just sounds like Blue Steel. Like Red Steel is so funny to me. Was it named after Zoolander? I I am consumed with a desire to know if this was named after Blue Steel. This search warrant affidavit goes on to lay out a lot of what the cooperating witnesses say about Shaw and Smith and how they are involved, mostly Shaw, more so than Smith. They also include a lawsuit from the FTC against Thrive Learning. And the defense purpose of putting this in here is that, look, Jen Shaw's not the one named in this lawsuit. Her name's nowhere in this thing. They're suing these other two individuals uh, named Rasmussen. But the government goes on to say, look, um, that's not instructive. The thing that's so interesting is that the FTC lawsuit that the defense attaches here lays out exactly what the government also says about how this scheme operated it's all the same information. So it's interesting to me that the defense attaches this because it has the information that they're saying they don't have directly in it. This lays out the scheme pretty well. They're trying to prove the point that Jen wasn't the owner of this company, but it also disproves the point that they need more information, in my opinion. And with that, 
We are done with the defense motion, and it is time to move on to the motion of the government. The government has a motion. The government has a motion. We're going to hit the highlights of the government motion because I have interspersed as we're talking about the defense motion, what the government responses are, but there are some little nuggets in here that would be great to break down. This motion is 82 pages. I mean, not the 206 that the defense brought. They didn't need it. They didn't include as many attachments because they're like, look, you have this information. Like you have this information. The first thing that we learn in the government's response is that there are two related, three related cases. See, I even misstated it earlier. There are three related cases. The government says in their opposition or their reply, quote, in addition, as a courtesy, the government has referred the defendant's counsel to publicly available materials, including pretrial motion and eliminate briefing and decisions on such motions, plea, trial, and sentencing transcripts, and sentencing submissions, meaning the arguments submitted by the government and the defendant um, with regard to other sentencing. In the related cases, United States versus Morris, United States versus Ketabachi, and United States versus Metaros? Metatron. No, Metaros. And has produced to the defendant copy of the Jenks Act material and admitted government exhibits produced in advance of the Ketabachi trial. Look, there are, and I think I just kept saying two, but Morris, Metatron, I mean Metadros, I mean Metatron, and Ketabachi, three other cases, presumably multiple defendant cases, all filed in 2017 based on their case numbers, um, that the defense can use to see what the government's theory of these cases are because they all involve the business opportunity telemarketing scam. That's wild. That's a lot of information. Because the defense asked to know more about the scheme, the government lays it out quite a lot. And what they say about Jen Shaw's participation is that the defendant controlled her stream of leads from start to finish. The defendant obtained the initial lead after a sub $100 purchase and determined which coaching floor could buy leads from her and Smith, selected the downstream sales floors to which the coaching floor was permitted to pass the leads, choose the firms to provide fulfillment, paren, which sometimes involved selecting a firm operating operated directly by the defendant herself or the company she worked for, set limits on how much the downstream sales floors could charge and determine which products each of the downstream sales floors could sell. Unless the coaching sales floor purchased the lead outright and therefore decided how to sell it to downstream sales floors, typically when a sales floor sold additional services to the victim, the sales floor paid a percentage of the revenue from the sale to defendant Jen Shaw. From 2012 to 2013, they say that she provided leads to top shelf marketing. From 2013 to 2014, they say that she was providing leads to reliable business consultants. From 2014 uh, forward, she was providing sales leads to Olive Branch Marketing. From 2013 to 2019, providing leads to um, coaching floors operated by somebody called Handron, who passed them along to BizOp floors, including Corporate Development Center, Alliance Educational Services, and others. They also talk about the breakdown of this telemarketing scheme and talk about the uh, the various times that law enforcement in some way 
or enforcement and regulatory agencies in some way peeked in, which was interesting to me because none of these things seem to be a hint to Jen Shaw. So let's talk about what the government disclosed here. They say that the online education and coaching industry, and specifically sales floors that employed the defendant, previously were subject to significant FTC enforcement. In April 2015, the defendant was deposed by the FTC in the FTC's investigation of Top Shelf. During that deposition, defendant admitted that she previously worked for Thrive and was responsible for managing Thrive's relationships with, quote, outside sales organizations. That is, sales floors like those operated by Holt. The defendant further testified that she stopped working at Thrive and began working for a similar company called Guidance, where she was then employed in 2015. What we also learned in that transcript is that Thrive closed and was purchased by Guidance. So Guidance was really just Thrive under a new name. It goes on to say that Top Shelf and RBC were both sued by the FTC and enjoined, stopped, completely stopped from further operation in January 2016. Like, wasn't that a hint? Then in 2017, the FTC filed parallel civil actions against both Thrive and Guidance, because Thrive became Guidance, alleging unfair and deceptive business practices in connection with coaching work and work from home businesses. Thrive entered into a simultaneous settlement in which it agreed to an injunction on marketing business coaching and work from home opportunities. In January 2018, the FTC entered into a settlement with Guidance, as well as several related entities that worked with Guidance in exchange for $29 million. First of all, how much money is this company making in this if the fine was $29 million? And second, how if if a company that you work for is getting sued by the FTC and settling for $29 million, don't go on TV, maybe. Maybe it's a hint. Maybe it's a hint. But wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. In around early 2017, defendant and co-defendant Stuart Smith began operating their own lead generation business using a number of business names, including Red Steel, Fortitude Holdings, and Mastery Pro Group. Is Fortitude like, you can shut us down, but we keep coming back, yo. Mastery Pro was incorporated in Washington, and its incorporation document lists another individual as the registered agent, but do not list the defendant or Smith. Beginning in 2017, defendant became increasingly careful. I wonder why. $29 million fine by the FTC. Became increasingly careful about being connected to any coaching or business opportunity scheme floor and directed those doing business with her to incorporate companies in the names of third parties in Wyoming and to communicate only via encrypted messaging applications such as Telegram. Oh, so all those other things were a hint. And instead of going, oh, maybe I shouldn't do business this way, you went, oh, oh, maybe we should just make it harder to track. I mean, if that doesn't say a lot, if that doesn't say a lot, The government goes on to elaborate as to why conspiracy to commit wire fraud was properly pled, why conspiracy to commit money laundering was properly pled, why the indictment shouldn't be thrown out, why the defendant's motion for the bill of particulars should be denied. They they indicate that um, part of the standard is whether it's necessary to have a bill of particular, not whether it would be helpful. They also talk about the fact that the bill of particulars would um, limit the government in the way that you would have to stick to just what's in the bill of particulars and that that's not needed in this case because so much information is available to the defendant. 
they go on to argue and reply to the defendant's motion with regard to the search warrant saying, this is pretty much moot. We're not going to use it. We didn't get anything from the email warrant. We're not going to use the cell phone location data. And in a footnote, the government says that they would not seek to introduce in its case in chief at trial any of the cell site location information since the conversation with defense that they had had previously and subsequent to the defendant filing this motion, the government identified additional evidence from which the defendant's location at certain times, uh, at certain points in time can be established without the use of cell site information. And now I want to know what it was. And I'm dying to know if it's social media. Like, did they just get her Instagram account and go, oh, this shows us exactly where you are. We don't need cell site information. I'm so curious, but they really do kind of cut off that line of arguing. And I think the judge is just going to deny those motions. They then make the same motion with regard to unsealing the grand jury transcript saying, look, the worry is that there's these misleading statements. We're saying that there aren't, it's moot anyway. And we're saying that there isn't any issue with unsealing the grand jury. And that doesn't need to happen because there's no false statements that were made. The government addresses the Brady and Giglio arguments saying, look, there is a procedure for this. There is timing for this. We've already detailed quite a lot. We've already turned over what we have, but there is a timing and procedure that we're going to continue to follow because that's what we're supposed to do. Then they address the motion to suppress the post-arrest statements. And the government says, the defendant moves to suppress her post-arrest statement on the ground that she purportedly did not voluntarily waive her Miranda rights. Her challenge is baseless and should be rejected without holding a hearing. Then they talk about the relevant facts from their perspective. The defendant was arrested on March 31st, 2021. Prior to her arrest, the detective called and asked her to pull over. A few minutes later, law enforcement arrived. Um, the defendant was escorted to the back of her car, placed in handcuffs, and told that the agents had a warrant for her arrest. They did not tell her of the charges at that time. Side note, they don't have to. The detective told her in sum that the agents wanted to talk to her and wanted to make sure she was okay. They took her to a break room and handcuffed her to a chair. They turned on a recording device and introduced themselves. The detective showed her the statement of rights, but before reading it, the detective asked the defendant the following questions. How do you pronounce your name? Defendant Jen Shaw or Jennifer Shaw. Detective Jennifer Shaw. And what's your date of birth? This is a transcript. And then defendant month date 73. I like that the government redacted it out of there just to protect her impunity. I mean, I'm sure it's on celebrity birthdays, but I appreciate the effort. The detective then said, okay, and you live where? Defendant in Park City. Oh, is that the Palomino address? Defendant, yes. So defendant argues that she was worried about mistake of identity, but before they even waived her Miranda rights, they confirmed her identity. So, you know, uh... Do we really need to do we really need to worry about confirmation of identity? After reviewing the defendant's rights, Detective um, Bastos read aloud from the waiver form, I have read or someone has read to me this statement of my rights and I, meaning you, understand what my rights are. At this time, I'm willing to answer questions without a lawyer present. Is that correct? Defendant replied yes and signed the form. Defendant mentioned her contacts were blurry. The agent said, are you okay? Do you need to go to the bathroom? They spent the next few minutes helping her fix her contact lenses. When the defendant said that she was good, they began questioning her. A little over 30 minutes in, the detective and the defendant had the following exchange. Quote, detective, all right, so let me let me ask you some questions. Um, did you know anybody who's been arrested in the biz op within the last five years? 
Shaw, arrested detective, like charged federally, like you, like you've been federally arrested. Do you know anybody who was arrested for working in the biz op industry? Defendant, um, well, I heard from people that, that, um, there were some people arrested that was, a uh, um, I don't know what his name is. I don't know. A lot of them seem to be like from Jersey. I don't really know them. They go on to say later in the interrogation, the detective asked the defendant if she knew a particular individual, and these names are blacked out um, and redacted. The defendant responded, I know who blank, I know blank and blank, and acknowledged that they ran a sales floor. The defendant did not mention individual one, despite having multiple interactions with him given rise to the order of protection. So she, in her motion, argues that she was so emotionally distraught because she thought individual one who she had an order of protection against was coming to like get her. And that's why these New York detectives were contacting her, but it never came up in the interrogation, according to the government. Isn't that interesting? The defendant discussed the blank with agents at various points throughout the remainder of the interrogation, but never specifically acknowledged that she knew individual one. So, Later on, it became the, this is the argument. This is why I was so distressed. But in the moment, in the interview, it never actually came up, right? The last thing the government attaches is the actual statement of rights and the signed waiver of rights, indicating that Jen Shaw has signed next to each line of the rights and has signed the bottom and the detective has signed the bottom. Overall, on these motions, I think that the defense did everything that they could. They have no, they have nothing they can really do except try to attack the evidence and stop particular items of evidence from coming in, attack the government's theory of the case. That is their job. The government made a very strong showing as to why most of those, if not all of those motions, will be denied. Some of them are moot, some of them are premature. But when it comes to the post-arrest statements, there's not a chance. Like, there's just not a chance. When it comes to the bill of particulars, because of the volume of information that's out there, um, I think that the court will deny that as well. I originally was like, oh, I could see with such a large scheme over so much time why the defense would want that. But as I'm going through the government's motion, looking at the volume of other trials and material that's been provided, I'm like, oh, well, the government's not obligated to point to like, oh, page 109 is the page you need. They can't even do that because then if the defense comes back and goes, you told me I needed this page, but there was information in that page. You're hiding something. That's not what's happening here. Yes, it's a lot of information. Yes, the defense has a lot to catch up on, but that's kind of the difficulty of a federal prosecution and the difficulty of federal criminal defense. It is a lot of work. I don't think the court will grant any of these. I'll be interested to see if the court grants an evidentiary hearing, um, meaning an actual like having the lawyers argue and answer questions on the record. I wonder if the court will just rule on these motions. I think that that's more likely than not. And let me know what you think of the new information we learned in these motions on social media at the Emily D. Baker. And this is our sign off now. It just is. We're just keeping it. Raise a glass and say it with me. May your Wi-Fi be strong. May your toilet paper be plentiful. May your family be well. And may the odds be ever in your favor. Thank you for being here. Thank you for being a Lawnard and thank you for your support. Can't wait to talk to you about this case on social media. I'm dying to know what you think. I'm dying. I'm dying. This was so much information. I can't believe this was such a long episode. We're done. We're done. It's just, it's time to go. It's time to go. We out. We out.